Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 11, at verses 16 to 24. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if there are miracles that were performed in you and been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Thanks, Robert. Good morning. Morning to you if you're watching on Zoom as well. I'm Colin, I'm the pastor, and it's good to be with you. You know, when um, people are against Christianity or Jesus or organized religion in general, I reckon one of the most common reasons given is that people imagine people of faith like us to be a bunch of moralistic killjoys. You know, the kind of picture of standing there with a clipboard of rules, just waiting for somebody to mess up and do the wrong thing. And I think probably at heart, that's what they think God is like as well. And just reflecting on this, I found this newspaper clipping. I've got a slide, I think, of the headline. Um, from the early 1900s, kind of sums up what people think. Bare ankles contest fiasco. Clergy intervene. Bare ankles in a dance room has caused in indignation of the clergy. Clergy just meaning pastors, ministers, that kind of thing. The display was at an ankle competition for women at Earl Shilton, arranged by the adult school football club. The competition attracted a large attendance to adult school hall on Wednesday night. All went well until a letter was handed to the promoters. It was written on behalf of the Earl Shilton clergy and expressed the hope that this competition would not be proceeded with. The interference was strongly resented and the promoters decided to proceed with the competition. The program of dances continued without a hitch until the MC called the Bare Ankles Competition. It then transpired that the United Minister's protest had had the desired effect on the fair sex. Despite the persuasive powers of the enthusiast, not a single lady reported, responded, and after a wait, the gentlemen decided on a show all on their own. Competitors came forward in good numbers, and amidst much amusement, Mr. W. Langham carried off the honours with the prettiest ankles. Now, it's a funny story, but isn't that what lots of people we know think we're like? We're like those clergy who didn't want any bare ankles. We're the prudish killjoys trying to spoil everyone's fun. And people think that's what God is like. And if Jesus is God, that must be what Jesus is like. Well, in today's passage, Jesus shows us that actually 
It's most people hearing his message, hearing the good news about him, who are being the unreasonable killjoys. They're being the ones that are impossible to please. And last week, uh, we saw John the Baptist. He wasn't too sure if Jesus really was God's long-promised rescuer king, the Messiah or Christ, um, because he knew the promised one was supposed to bring final judgment on evil. Uh, Jesus helped him by showing him the Bible also says God's king will come and restore, redeem, and rescue, and bless all the things Jesus has been doing. So final judgment later at the end, blessing made available now and brought to fullness at the end. So that was Jesus' response to what John's thinking about him. Now, um, in the passage Robert's just read for us, we see his response to how most people of his time, so this generation he calls them, and I think history shows us, and our present day shows us, down the generations, how most people think of Jesus and respond to him. There's an outline in your leaflet. It's very simple, just two headings. There's no pleasing some people and a fair go. So first of all, there's no pleasing some people. Verse 16, read the passages in your leaflets. So what can I compare this generation? In other words, what are most people, those with an attitude hostile to God, down the generations, what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So the pictures are like children playing at things. When you were a kid, did you ever play at being grown-ups? You know, we, we did role-playing, being mom or dad or teacher or fireman or shopkeeper. And that's the idea here. So imagine the children out in the marketplace. Some of them saying, let's play weddings. I'll play the pipe in celebration like they did at my cousin's big do. But the other kids are like, no, we don't want to play weddings. We want to play funerals instead. Let's sing a dirge instead. And they're like, no, we don't want to do that either. It's like when they don't know what they want. It's like when young children have a tantrum. I've got a picture here. Anyone who's had a young child and a car can relate to this picture. You can feel your back and your arms aching, can't you, as you wrestle. They don't want to get in the car. But if you try to take them out of the car, they wouldn't want that either. Toddlers, like, they get too tired, overstimulated, and they don't know what they want. I found a couple of examples of people sharing their child's tantrums on the web. <clears throat> From the back seat, my enraged toddler sobbed. He's looking out of my window. He was mad because his brother was looking out of his window instead of the other one. Another one, my two-year-old had a full-blown meltdown because our dog wouldn't read him a story. So there's no pleasing them. There's no reasoning with them because they don't know what they want, so they just find anything to complain and have a tantrum about. And Jesus says that's what the response to him and to John the Baptist has been like. It's been that unreasonable. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's no pleasing some people. John the Baptist came 
with the message, repent, because God's kingdom is near. And the way you've treated God means you're in just as much trouble as the pagans around you. He was calling them to mourn, to mourn their sin. He had a somber dirge for them. Well, they thought they're all fine, and so they didn't want to hear it. And people often don't want to hear, give up calling all the shots on life yourself, and hand the reins over to God. We get caught up in what we think is so good about making our own kingdom with us as king or queen. But if we take a good look at how good and life-giving God's kingdom and his good king Jesus are, well, surely that will make people want to repent and turn to him, won't it? Well, verse 19, Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus came giving us a sneak preview, again, another thumbnail sketch of our eternity, banqueting with God in heaven. Jesus gives a sneak preview of that, entering into people's hearts and homes. He, he was a friend to people. He parted. He celebrated. He brought good news of life and restoration and forgiveness, of joining a family, a bit like a wedding. Jesus played the happy pipe dance of salvation. Well, that wasn't good enough either. Refusal for refusal's sake, because at least it's my refusal to make. Never mind that it causes them to miss out on the most generous offer of grace. There's no pleasing some people. These days, people practice wellness, don't they? I don't know if you do this. You practice wellness. You deliberately take time out and just focus on your breathing or something. Well, we used to practice wellness all the time, didn't we? You know, if you'd arranged to meet someone and you're waiting for them, you just waited for them. You couldn't call them to see if on the way. Um, you didn't have a phone in your pocket with loads of TV channels on it. Uh, it. You're on the bus. Well, you were on the bus. That was it. Staring out the window at the traffic, watching the condensation drip down the window. We didn't realize we were practicing mindfulness. We used to call it being bored. But now we've got access to everyone and everything 24-7. We're not happy with that either. We complain there's information overload, there's too much choice, there's no opportunity to switch off. There's no pleasing us. There's no pleasing some people. And what do you think most people's problem with Jesus is? Why don't more hear the gospel and trust in him? It's not sociological reasons, it's not cultural reasons, it's a heart problem. Like the children in the marketplace, they don't know what they want, but they do know what they don't want. They don't want a message about God's king because they don't want to dance to someone else's tune. And because of this, they miss out on the wonder of the truth of Jesus. So as we share Jesus, as we will face mockery, opposition, indifference and steadfast refusal to engage... But I think it's a great help in experiencing that to know that's not primarily because our good news message, it's not because it's unreasonable or unscientific or culturally inappropriate or inherently difficult to believe. Those are good excuses, but that's not the primary reason. 
is because people find it very hard to give up on dancing to their own tune. After a lifetime investing in and practicing all their own steps, to admit it's mostly the wrong steps and that Jesus' tune is much better than the right one, well, that's really hard. So even if they're not enjoying dancing to their own tune, even if they can see there's a much better dance they could be doing, it's easier, it's less damaging to our pride to carry on as we are, unpleasable. And if that's you this morning, let me urge you, look into Jesus and his claims for yourself. Listen to his tune, and who knows, you might just find your foot tapping along to something much better. As I was confronted by this unappeasable, nothing's good enough attitude in this passage, it struck me, I bet an awful lot of us have been left hurt and feeling insecure by relationships where people treat us like we can never please them, like we're never good enough, can't do anything right. Well, if that's true, you need to hear that Jesus thinks you are so important, you are so loved by God that he came to die for you. He came to give you his goodness. And Jesus is definitely good enough. And he did that so that when God looks upon us on that final day, God's more than pleased with us. He's overjoyed with us. And we get to share in all the blessing that Jesus enjoys. And so trusting in Jesus means we're freed from this endless battle to please Instead, of, instead, we can be transformed out of thankfulness and awe at just how good Jesus has been to us, how good it is to walk in step with his tune. Verse 19, Jesus says, But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In the end, God is wise. All the objections to Jesus and his message can sound logically compelling, intellectually watertight, all very clever, except that Jesus is real and his claims are proven true. And protesting and resisting, not being happy with that answer, won't change what is wise and what is foolish. And in Jesus here, his own experience, it's obvious that they can't have given Jesus a fair go. That's our second heading, a fair go. Uh, Jesus exposes the foolishness of his generation's response and the consequences of their response. I had a friend, um, we used to go to the same Christian camp together, but he's since become an atheist. And he claims, though, like many do, said, if God's really real, if he just made himself really obvious, appeared undeniably in front of me, then I'd believe. The trouble is, Jesus' generation, that did happen to them, and for lots of them, it shows that that's not the case. Verse 20. So let's have a look at, we're going to look at verse 20 to 24 again. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they were the northern Galilee towns where Jesus had been doing most of his ministry. Tyre and Sidon were further north, uh, modern-day Lebanon, and they were renowned for being Baal worshippers, pagan worship and they'd been punished by God for that. So these were places that were a byword for pagan opposition to God. And Sodom, you'll probably remember from our Genesis series, had been so bad, so full of evil and devoid of any good, that God had destroyed it by raining down fire and sulfur on it. But Jesus reckons those places will be better off on Judgment Day than the towns he's been ministering in. Why? Well, just to take Capernaum, let's consider. Say, imagine you, you lived in Capernaum at that time. What would you have witnessed so far? I'm just going to rattle through these quickly, just to give you the gist. Jesus healing a leper just outside town. Jesus healing the centurion's servant in Capernaum. Healing Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. Gathering all the people who were sick in the city and healing them all. In Capernaum, calm in a storm just off the coast of Capernaum, driving out two demon-possessed men, healing the paralytic man who was lowered down through the roof by his mates, healing a lady with persistent bleeding, raising the synagogue leader's daughter back to life, healing two blind men, giving speech to a mute man. All of that has happened in Capernaum. If you're living there, what are you going to make of that? If only God would make himself more obvious. See, Jesus hasn't dived in with judgment in his ministry. He's offered healing, restoration. He's shown that he has the authority to forgive sin. He's offered the possibility of salvation through repenting faith. And all those amazing things he's done, well, surely they're enough to convince those looking on he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. Well, no. Jesus has not been given a fair go. And there are consequences for that refusal to believe. See, Jesus has come at this point to save. He made that point to John last week. But he does point forward to the day he will return to judge. And he's very clear about that. So let's look closely at what Jesus has to say about judgment. So verse 22, just note this. According to Jesus, there is a day of judgment coming. That's Jesus says that. Verse 21, he says, woe to you. Woe has that sense of utter desolation, that feeling of having come to the end of the line. There's no way back. All options exhausted. You've just completely lost. And people like to convince themselves that Jesus was, you know, all love and no judgment, completely non-judgmental. But he's definitely pronouncing judgment on these towns here, isn't he? Whoa. 
And judgment, you know, judgment is a good thing because judgment means things matter. What we do in life matters. We and how we live has a value. It's, it's good or it's bad. It's right or it's wrong. Some people claim everything's random. You know, we're just stardust molecules finding ways to perpetuate ourselves. But nobody ever says that at the birth of a child or at a wedding. Nobody actually lives life like that way. Everyone lives as though life matters. And Jesus being judge on judgment day affirms that. Judgment's a good thing. Jesus tells us more about the nature of this judgment. Verse 22 and verse 24, Jesus tells us each will be judged according to the opportunity to turn to him in faith that they've had. Each will be judged according to the opportunity they have received. All those towns Jesus had performed, his wonders and miracles in, they're more culpable. They're more in the wrong and so deserving greater judgment because they had the truth of Jesus laid out on a plate for them in person. Their unbelief can only come from an unreasonable, steadfast refusal to believe. And so they're much more responsible for their own unbelief. There's a greater component of direct disobedience and hard-heartedness than even Sodom, Tyre and Sidon, evil as they were. Notice as well there are degrees of punishment. Judgment is proportional. Verse 22, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. Verse 24, more bearable for Sodom. There's a scale and a proportionality to this day of judgment, according to Jesus. And I think sometimes we get fuzzy on this because we, we, we know all sin is sin. There are no good sins. It all must be punished, accounted for. And so we can end up conflating that with all sin, all sin being judged the same. But it's not. Some sin is worse than others. We intuitively know that, and that's how the Bible treats it. So hell will be more bearable for some than for others because that is what is just and right and fair. And God is always unfailingly just and right and fair. Often the question is raised, what happens to those who haven't heard the gospel? How will God judge them? Well, at least part of the answer has to be here, doesn't it? Verse 21 and 23 Jesus seems to know how Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have responded to the gospel, doesn't he? He reckons they would have repented and avoided their in-history, in-the-moment judgment. And because of that reality known to Jesus, their final judgment will be more bearable than proud Capernaum with all its miracles Once or twice a year, I catch up with um, our network boss, Paul Harrington, and I caught up with him on Wednesday. And just, he was just helping me think through um, the structure of my week, how I organized that, talked about being clear about what I'm aiming for and proactively putting the big rocks in the diary jar towards those goals. Really good advice, okay? But when I got home, Sharon said, you're not as enthused and energized as you usually are when you've seen Paul. What's the matter with you? 
Well, it's because I was pretty embarrassed, really, because all this stuff, Sharon has already told me that ages ago. And I don't want to be the guy that doesn't listen to his wife, but does listen to his boss, you know? I'm embarrassed that I've not listened to Sharon, not in a way that I acted on it anyway. And I'm extra culpable for that, for that not being better at this than I am, because I've already been told and just not listened. Because I haven't acted on what I've heard, what I've heard before, that's now backed up by Paul as well. So the application is don't be like me. Don't be like Capernaum. They were all still sinners, so it stands to reason that for each of us, there's probably something God is teaching us and showing us through his word, through one another, through his people, that we're refusing to hear or that we can't be pleased by. We need to keep asking God as we come to his word, the Bible, as we pray, as we sharpen and encourage one another in church, in home group, and and day-to-day in fellowship, What dirge does he need us to hear? What pipe tune is he calling us to dance to in celebration that we're dismissing out of hand? Change is scary. Change uh, can mean giving up yourself, denying yourself. But that's where true life is found. What's it going to take for you to listen and to respond? Listen to Jesus' tune. Let go and trust him. What about those we're trying to reach with the gospel? Given this is so often the response, this irrational refusal to believe, to be, can't be pleased, it can be tempting to give up, can't it? Well, listen to this letter from a 17-year-old student to his friend. You know, I think that I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof of any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is, all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own invention, Christ as much as Loki. Superstition, of course, in every age has held the common people But in every age, the educated and thinking ones have stood outside it. I'm not going to go back to the bondage of believing in any old and already decaying superstition. I mean, it's well spoken, isn't it? But it's fairly typical of people we know, isn't it? Not just denying Jesus, but feeling intellectually and morally superior to Christians who believe mythologies of their own invention or superstition. And faced with that attitude, that can seem hopeless, can't it? Well, do you know which 17-year-old wrote that letter? That letter was written by C.S. Lewis, the one who called himself the most reluctant convert, one of the most famous and influential Christians in modern history. It's not hopeless. These words of Jesus to those towns, to that generation, to all generations, is a warning and a promise. It's a warning to listen, and it's a promise to listen. They're a warning of judgment if we won't listen to the well-founded claims that Jesus is king. 
And they're a promise that if we do listen to the judgment warning and respond in faith, God will listen to us, will save us, and gives us a new start. We give Jesus a fair go. He gives us more than a fair go. There's no pleasing some people. But for those who will listen, he makes the most, most amazing offer. And one we'll look at in more detail next week. And I'll finish with these words of Jesus from Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have made yourself obvious and knowable in Jesus. And like that generation, we need to make sure we're listening and not just dismissing out of hand. Please, um, as well, bring to mind uh, things where we're trying to blank out and dismiss, dismiss out of hand things that you're trying to say to us through your word, through your people. Uh, help us to be open-hearted and trust you and obey you. Amen.